how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Let's read Exodus 3, verse 10. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh, said the Lord to Moses, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray for David. Lord, we're so grateful for your servant, David. We're grateful for the words you've given him for us this morning. Would you pour forth through him by your Holy Spirit and plant them deep in our hearts and lives to bear really good fruit for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm very well aware that many of you will not have access to Sky Television. And some of you may even be politically opposed (laughs) to it. But, um, and and I'm not boasting when I say, I just want to use an illustration from it. Uh, Currently, Sky Television are doing in their films a thing where they take um, two films which are telling the same story, right? They may be a, a sort of detective story made in the 1960s and it's been remade in 2010 
and they're showing them one after the other so that you can compare it. And when I was looking at this, I saw that they were doing this with the film The Ten Commandments and then with the film called Prince of Egypt. Now, The Ten Commandments was made in 1956, or released in 1956, and it was a blockbuster of a film with a huge cast, lots of stars in it, and I saw it when I was 19, um, and I've um, never <laughs> seen it again. Um, and The Prince of Egypt was a, an animated film, like they do Walt Disney-type cartoons of the story, and actors and actresses do voiceovers on it. And they were showing these one after the other, so I thought I would record them, and when I got leisure, I would watch them. And I've watched The Ten Commandments, and surprisingly, considering it was 1956, you know, quite often if you see a film that's made in the 50s or 60s, it looks very dated compared with modern. I didn't actually think it was dated. I thought it was still very worth seeing, and I watched it. It was, as I say, nearly four hours. And at a different time, <laughs> a different time, I started to watch The Prince of Egypt, but I fell in sleep in the middle of it. <laughs> so I don't know how good a film <laughs> it is. But essentially, The Ten Commandments is telling the story about Moses, and that's what we are now moving to as we move through um, Exodus and the passage that Debbie read. Moses, if, if you were here last week, you will have known he'd just seen the burning bush, which was vividly illustrated by the children's burning bushes that they all created in the Three T's meeting. And the bushes were not consumed. And, and Moses was on Horeb, the mountain of God. And our past passage starts with God addressing Moses with a message of what God wants Moses to achieve. The message is no simple task that, wants, that God is asking Moses. And he's saying to him, go to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, one of the most powerful nations of the time, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of captivity. Now, I wonder if you... I'm trying to, I was trying to get a grasp of what this was like. Suppose you're a Ukrainian shepherd, okay? And God comes to you and says, I want you to go into Moscow, get an audience with President Putin, and tell him, I want you to release all the Ukrainian prisoners that you've got. I, that's the nearest I could get to a vision of the sort of thing that Moses was being asked to do. It was something absolutely huge. And what I want to say is that God does not normally ask us to do things that we will find easy to do. He's wanting us to grow in faith. So when you... When God asks you to do something, I think it'll be very rare that you'll think, oh, yeah, great, I'll enjoy doing that. <laughs> the normal thing that will come will, what me? And that's what exactly Moses responds with. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh 
and bring out the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And it's lovely that Moses was willing to quiz God. You know, he wasn't going to... He, he really wanted to ask questions of God, and we must never be afraid to ask God questions. God's... I've got to say, wise enough. He can answer our questions, and he can lead us. For the past 40 years, Moses has been a shepherd dwelling in a wild area, perhaps a lonely area, with his wife and her family. For those of you who know the story, previously he'd been part of Egyptian royalty. But that was now long past. It was 40 years ago and was not part of his current life. Moses realizes his insufficiency for this task. It's a common experience that we all realize our insufficiency for the things God asks us to do. When God asks us to move on in faith, when he asks us to do something, our normal response is, what me? God, we can always see somebody else who'd do it much better than we would. Yeah, that's not hard. Um, but the normal response when God is asking you to do something is to say, what me? And to feel insufficient to do it. And the response to Moses is, certainly I will be with you. But often we're not prepared to take him at his word and not prepared to go forward. At the end of my final year of university, the church that I was in was asked to take uh, a mission, and it shows you how long ago it was, it was 1960, uh, to Crawley Newtown. Crawley had just been established um, on sort of a, like a greenfield site, and they'd built loads of houses and, and things like that. And there was a church there, and it had invited the church that I went to to send a team of students to uh, take a week-long mission. And um, I decided to go along. And actually, 70 students um, at various stages in their student career went on this mission to Crawley Newtown. And um, we were all put up with different, in different houses. And things are very different now. But in those days, what your aim was, that you went round and you talked to people. And it wasn't that you were seeking to lead them to Jesus. It was that you were inviting them to come and hear the missioner um, speak, right? And, and that, so every evening there would be some sort of evangelistic thing. And your aim was to try and get as many of these people to come and hear the missioner speak, um, rather than you lead them to... And I had some, I was um, allocated a, um, a blind man to go with me on my visits. Um, and I learned a huge amount from him, but that's an, another part of the story. But at this mission, the headmaster of the local school, local primary school, asked if someone would come and at their morning assembly give a 10-minute talk. And there were a whole group of us students, and, and the, the leader of the mission was saying, now, who of you would like to go and give this 10 more? And everyone said, no. No, thank you. you know? And I, I had got no real experience of public speaking. You know? I, I'd only recently become a Christian. I, I, I'd got ve very, very little 
experience of speaking in public at all. And, um, but I saw all these other people <coughs> saying no, so I said, well, I'll do it then. And then they said, okay, come. <laughs> now, I've no idea how good or bad it was. Um, my fellow students said, oh, that was good. <laughs> but I think it was only that I, it was a, that was good out of relief that they didn't have to do it. <laughs> it wasn't a genuine judgment of, of what it was like. But this is it. When God asks us, we are usually loath to take the step forward. And God is having to... And he, I just want to tell you, the minute you become a Christian, God will start asking you to do things for him. That's part of the deal. And you will not want often to do the deal that he's asking you to do. And you will always see other people who could do it much better than you could. But God seems to say, no, 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 it's, it's you that I'm wanting, and I'm wanting to grow your faith, and I'm wanting you to develop in this. And God speaks to Moses and says, because Moses is sort of saying, no, not me, thank you. Um, we in, um, this will be the sign to you, that is I who've sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And the mountain was Horeb, which is thought to be Mount Sinai. Moses continues arguing with God. And I shall say, the God of my fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to him? What, what name are you? And then we get this amazing statement of God. God speaks to Moses and he says, I am who I am. You shall say, I am has sent me to you. The God of your fathers. Now, of course, the Israelites didn't have the written books because if you look at the top of your Bibles, you'll say it's the first book of Moses, the second book of the, the first five books. So all of their thing would have been Fathers and sons, you know, that the whole of the history being related, verbally related. Maybe there would have been people who recorded it, I don't know. You have to remember, in, in those days, not many people could read. Um, we, we have this very, because of our universal education where almost everyone can read, we assume that that was what the, the situation was in those days. Very, very few people, and maybe those who'd, who'd had some sort of advantage. Now, Moses would have had it because he was educated in Egypt at the, as, as royalty, and education would have been something for him. But the other, many of the others wouldn't be. And so it would have been verbal records that would have been kept, and maybe there would have been um, priests or, or senior people who would have had some sort of record. But they wouldn't have had the books of the Bible that we have, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. But verbal recording is very good when then that's all you've got. There will be, um, um, uh, because we haven't, don't do verbal recording so much, our memories are much less acute than theirs would have been. So they would have been able to know what the story is for. And history verbally transmitted over maybe, I don't know, they talk about um, Joseph going down to Egypt and some say 700 years, and some say 500 years before the sort of time of Moses. So, um, so if you're going down before Joseph, um, 
you may be talking about, I don't know, 900 years. So it's verbal records, the God of our fathers. Um, and we have, we have it recorded in Genesis for us. And we read in Genesis 15, 1, God talking to Abraham says, I am your shield. Starting to use the phrase, I am. And also in 15, 7, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And then a little bit later in Genesis 17, God said to him, I am God Almighty. That's to Abraham he's talking to. Um, Abraham at one stage, and then he gets given the ha in the middle of his name, and he becomes Abraham. Um, and God says to um, Abraham, and thing, um, I am the God, I, sorry, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So the God of Abraham is established. And then, of course, Abraham's son, Isaac, or at least his second son is Isaac. And in Genesis 26, 24, he says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not fear, I am with you. So Isaac hears this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not fear me. And then Jacob, um, Isaac's son, in Genesis 28, 30, he says, here is, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And in Genesis 35 and verse 11, God says to Jacob, now named Israel, he's changed his name to Abraham, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. So the God of your fathers was Abraham and um, Isaac and, and Jacob, and God has been continually using this phrase, I am, I am, I am, um, to each of them. He's trying to, and now he's saying to Moses, you are to go and say, I am who has sent me. The enslaved Israelites in Egypt would know the God of their fathers from this verbal transmissions, but because the Egyptian gods would have had names, they might ask Moses, what was the name of the God who was speaking to him and to them? So God uses this phrase, I am who I am. You shall say to the Egyptians, or to, the, to the Israelites who are slaves there, I am has sent me to you. The Hebrew word for I am is, I can spell it to you, E-H-Y-E-H. -E and it's a form of the word higher, H-A-Y-A-H. And many scholars think that Yahweh and Hayah are different forms of the verb to be. So Yahweh, which then becomes um, the name, which is then changed into Jehovah later, Yahweh is a form of the word. Now, I'm not a scholar um, by a long, long way. I'm just telling you what I've read, okay? <laughs> so, um, but basically, God is continuously present for every generation, he is the I am. He's not just the God of the past or the God of the future. He's the God of the present for each one of us. And the other thing that is very interesting as you read this passage is that God has appreciated the affliction of his people in Egypt and has given, given heed to their cry because of their 
hard taskmasters. And he says, I am aware of their sufferings. Very easy to think, does God care? When we're going through a tough situation, the temptation will be to think, does God care? Does he know what I'm going through? Can he understand what I'm going through? And God is really making this statement, I am aware of the sufferings that you are going through. I'm aware of the sufferings of my people. That doesn't mean that you'll get instant answers. You've only got to read the biographies of Christians who've gone overseas on mission field, and they don't always get Indian, sorry, get instant answers. They do get answers in the end quite often, but you can read some of the things they went through and, um, and, and they may have been all their lives thinking, God, why won't you do something now about this? Because we want the here and now, but that sometimes that's not the way God works. But he does, he is aware of all our sufferings. Whoever we are, and in whatever situation, when we seek to follow him, he knows what we're going through. But I can't promise you you'll get instant answers. He, he doesn't, and it, it isn't an instant answer for Moses. He, Moses is told, you just go, and you've got an I am has sent you, and you do this. And, but what the promise that God makes to Moses is, I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, mostly because of the lack of faith of these people, that took over 40 years to get to the um, land of milk and honey. It could have been a great deal less, but you'll, you'll get that in, the, in the, the following week. Sorry, it's not in, in our part. What I'm telling you is that they don't get instantly from where they are to a land flowing with milk and honey, which is essentially trying to say to a, a very pleasant, lovely thing where things are going to go well with you. Sorry. Where God sees injustice, persecution, suffering, he is concerned. <clears throat> In um, this a great friend of mine who, um, and, and of many of, or at least some of you, <laughs> he's been to this, preached in this church and this sort of thing, who was um, working in India originally, and then he felt that the Lord was calling him up to move to Peshawar, in Pakistan, and he with his wife, and, and, and he, he felt that the Lord was saying to him, I want you to learn the language of um, Pashtu, which is the language that they speak uh, in the northwest frontier of Pakistan, um, that sort of area. It's also um, virtually the same language that they speak in mostly southern Afghanistan. It's slightly different, the two, but the, it's, it's essentially Pashtu is the root. And um, he was thinking, is God really asking me to, to speak this? And he happened to be walking along, or along and he bumps into a, a, a missionary who'd been working in the... And the missionary says to him, I want you to learn Pashtu. 
And, and he said, oh, God said that to me. So he joined, he, he, he went to the university um, in Bishar and, and enrolled on a course to learn Pashto and eventually became fluent in Pashto. And they were doing a work, and you probably know, um, when the Taliban came in, um, they uh, drove out a lot of people, and a lot of people fled to northwest frontier of Pakistan. And then when the Americans drove the uh, Taliban out in the first place, um, then before it was stabilized, you had a lot of warlords in Afghanistan who were causing a lot of problems. And so more and more people fled across the, the mountains or um, through to and set up camps in uh, Pakistan, tents. And this friend of mine was part of a team. He wasn't the leader, but he was part of the team that was taking food and um, uh, water and all sorts of supplies, clothing. They, they were collecting things and taking them and visiting the camps every day and making sure people had water to drink, that there was milk for the, the children to drink when they needed it, that there was food and that there was clothing. And they were very much a, a Christian outfit uh, working in Pakistan together. And then a rumor was spread in the camp that these Christians were having immoral relationships with the, um, the women in the camps. Now, my friend said to me, it was a total lie. It was, it was just that some of the mullahs were upset at the work that was being done by Christians and wanted to get rid of them. And a riot started, um, and they had to, they were under huge pressure, they had to leave the area, and the leader was driving in his car when the bullets hit the car, and his son was in the back, and the bullet went through. Neither he nor his son was injured by the bullets, but the bullet. And so they all were told, you've got to leave Pakistan and come back um, to where you're. One was an American, one was a, a German. And my friend was at home for, I don't know, perhaps six months to a year, and thought, I've got to go back again. And um, people said to him, you can't go back again. And he said, no, no, I've got to go back again. And they asked the, um, the, the other leader, who I think was an American, he said, no, I'm not going back again at all. And so he, my friend was invited to go and start the work again in Pakistan and do that. And he did that, but eventually he got moved into Afghanistan. But do you see, there was a wonderful work of God that was trying to help people, and they got under pressure, and there was no instant answer. There were bullets fired, at, at some, and, and they had to leave. The pressure got, but that didn't mean to say the work of God stopped. It just meant that God's answers are not necessarily to our timescale. And having gone back and gone into Afghanistan and seeing a great work was started amongst, and now it's, it's been called very much to a halt with this uh, recent pullout of the Americans and the British and the Europeans who were uh, in thing. And, but the work is still going on, and I get emails on a regular basis of what they are able to achieve under these new conditions. So the work of God goes on, but it's often 
asking for difficult things for us to do, or, or what we think are difficult. It's unlikely that any of us is going to be asked to do a Moses or a, a work like that. But God is going to be asking you to do something for him that you're not going to want to do. And he's going to say, well, you've got to trust me, and you've got to do that. For Christians and Jews, Moses is a very important prophet. But in Judaism, he is considered the most important prophet of all. He is credited with writing the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. He led the Israelites out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. He's recognized as a model leader with his humility, his empathy, his heroism, his patience, his self-reflection, his charisma, and his wisdom. Moses was a very great man of God, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to take anything away from him. But for Christians, he is not the most important prophet of all. The letter to the Hebrews was written to people who were coming out of Judaism and starting to follow Jesus. And he makes very clear that Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses because he created him. Jesus created him. Jesus is better than angels because they worship him. He's better than the Aaronic, Aaron was Moses' brother, the priesthood that was set up under Aaron, because Jesus' sacrifice was once for all time. And Jesus is better than the law because he mediates a better covenant. So, so what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to say to people is, Moses is great, yes, but Jesus is better. Jesus is more important. In John chapter 8 and verses 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's an incredible statement, isn't it? He is saying, I am God, because he's using the same thing. Before Abraham, whom they would have regarded as the sort of like the founder of their nation. Before Abraham was, I am. Seven times in, in, um, in John's Gospel, Jesus makes I am statements. He says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You see, they're all I am statements. In John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me shall never die. John 14, verse 6, which was the verse that um, Christian, when he came up for his birthday, <laughs> got. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I him, him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Over and over again, Jesus is, is, is saying this, this, this I am sentence, and he's, he's really saying, have you got it? I am God, if you've got the, the heart and the mind to understand. God and Jesus are continually present to us, always, always available. Just want to finish with one um, story about Afghanistan. Years ago, I read a book called A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush, right? And it was the story of two British people who went to the, um, the mountains on the east side of um, uh, Afghanistan, and they, they went walking, and it's their story, and they didn't even manage to scale the mountain that they were, <laughs> they were wanting to climb. And I remember a friend saying to me, only the British could uh, write a story about doing an expedition Failing to, <laughs> failing to succeed, and then writing a, a bestseller book about it. And, um, but Nuristan meant land of light. And when you read this book, they had a very, very friendly time um, in Nuristan. You know, the people were very friendly to them, very open to them. There used to be a church in Kabul, and um, they wanted to knock it down, and, and they wanted to use the land for something else. And a, and a prophet came in, and he managed to get access to the... They used to have a king in Afghanistan in those days, and say to him, if you knock down that church, you will have trouble and problems in Afghanistan for a long, long time afterwards. Afghanistan used to be a very friendly nation. Lots of, I mean, I've read books about the earlier days when people used to go in and it was, and it was an okay not thing. And that's what happened. The king was eventually deposed, tremendous fighting, and, and Nuristan has, sorry, not Nuristan, Afghanistan has been a problem thing. And Nuristan, this land of the light, um, where you know, the, these two British... Um, mountaineers went mountaineering with great friendship has become one of the darkest places on earth and I think about eight or ten years ago a team of um, medical people who were going around giving help to the poor were all massacred and it um, they were British people and it was just through being in the restaurant so dangerous places God calls people to work, and there are people who are working in Nuristan now, and I get their, their emails. But God is calling people, and some people he will call to do incredibly difficult tasks. And some people he will call that other to, to you to do, and you might think it's incredibly difficult, but it may not be considered terribly difficult by the rest of the world. But what God is doing is he's building his kingdom. And you're doing what he asks you to do, and somebody else what ask, doing what they ask him to do. That's what's going to build the kingdom. 
And it's always going to be something, I say this, that you probably don't want to do at the first thing. Yes, you may, as, as you walk with him, suddenly get to find out that, yes, you do like doing what he's asked you to do, and it's, it's okay, and it's thing. But initially, almost always, he asks you to do what you don't want to do. And you've just got to push on through faith to say, Lord, is this what you really want me to do? And then you go on and follow him. And you have these great I am statements of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, he says over and over and over again, what Moses said to the, um, the, the elders of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And Jesus is saying, I am, in all that he is saying to each of us. Amen. Is that okay? Your living word abide in me so richly as I abide in you. Let your living